Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. Sean is a financial advisor in Boca Raton, Florida with Hackett Financial. And this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, your premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America, helping people grow. Tractor Zoom delivering insights and dry shod boots, the wush- the, wushel, the official work boots of the Moving Iron Podcast. Can't talk this morning. Sean, how you doing, bud? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Obviously doing better than you are. I don't know what a washishal is, but it must be something great because it's the first time I've ever heard the word. So, looks like a huge opportunity. Oh, it's amazing! Everybody, jump on that hashtag washishal. That's 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 going to be trending here before too long. All right. Well, China has uh, decided that they are going to uh, make Hong Kong part of the uh, rank and file and um, go ahead and and kind of squash that anti-Beijing thing they got going on over there, and um, that is not going to fare well for the market. So I guess as you take a look at what's happening in China, the bickering between India and, and, and Pakistan and, order and all the stuff they got going on there and all the fun stuff they've got happening all over the world, seems like the uh, proverbial hornet's nest has been kicked more times than not here of late. I guess when you take a look around the world and see what's happening, I mean, China is just can't get out of the news. So I guess... Why stop talking about them, right? I guess uh, as you take a look at that, what, what's your thoughts? I mean, how do you think that's going to affect markets, and, and what do you see happening there? <clears throat> well, I mean, throughout history, whenever the global economy has gone down like it has, governments always blame somebody else. They never blame themselves. Yep. So we're in the proverbial blame game. Trump's blaming China. China's blaming U.S. India is blaming, you know, everyone's blaming everyone for why their situation is bad because they don't want to admit that maybe, you know, the problem actually is domestically and some of the bad policies that they, in fact, did. And so when you're in this blame game, um, it usually leads to some kind of a war. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a global war, but it can certainly be uh, a regional war. And, And just looking at where everything is headed, I just feel... We're moving towards some kind of wartime uh, global uh, order here. And um, what does that mean? Throughout history, whenever the world has gotten into a warlike scenario, commodity inflation has gone up a lot, Yep. Um, including food. So not that I wish that upon anybody, but we're in the business of looking at markets and looking at what they may or may not do. And I've never seen a escalation of war globally not mean uh, inflation in commodity prices and food prices. And so I would have to believe that if we're in fact moving towards, let's say a 2021 war, war year, you know, we're probably going to have some significant upward adjustments in the price of commodities to reflect disruption of, of, of supplies, to reflect uh, problems with um, uh, disinvestment, and um, uh, delayed exports, um, and plus people panic in those environments and they all want to hoard food because if they're afraid of access, then everybody says, I better get some more food in the house, I better get some more food in the storage bins, and everybody holds back supplies. And 
And so we're already starting to see that, as you know, Casey, this year in wheat and rice. We've seen those markets go up in aggregate, uh, and we've seen some of that hoarding mentality build in. It will hit hyperdrive when we actually go into a warlike scenario uh, as we move into 21. So overall, it's be a positive. The ne- that negative would be a positive for, for U.S. price, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, so there's, it's just, uh, you know, talking about, you know, staying on that same front of, of buying buying food and, and what have you. Um, China's been out buying like crazy of late. Obviously, they're, they're trying to catch up from when they ever had the coronavirus outbreak and what they had the ports shut down there for whatever it was, not 30 days or 60 days or whatever it was. They really had everything kind of locked down tight. And, you know, in the spirit of being Thursday's, uh, um, uh, export report um, uh, coming out here. Weekly export report coming out. <clears throat> China's been buying stuff. They've been buying stuff, and they've been popping up on the radar. But they are still trying to buy as many beans out of out of Brazil as they can. And uh, this, this this week's no different. So I guess as you look at the upcoming export report for today, what's your thoughts and uh, kind of where do you see things heading from there? Just to put the number in perspective, they've already acquired 85% of their expected imports from Brazil already. Yeah. Uh, and it's been shipped. That's actually been shipped already. Yeah. 85% of the soybeans have already been shipped out of Brazil already. That's telling you how panicked they are in buying soybeans before either Brazil shuts down because of COVID or until the, situ- the global unrest gets worse where they may not... You know, shipping lanes get shut down. Who knows what would happen in that kind of a scenario? So, um, the set, the bad news is, you know, <laughs> they've been buying all the, you know, aggressively buying soybeans. They've been buying U.S. beans, but they've been clearly focused on the Brazil buying of soybeans first. That's the bad news. The good news is, they kind of bought what they need to buy from them, and so if they want to buy any more, they're going to have to come buy it from us. And so I would have to believe that U.S. soybean exports. Later on this summer, once they've eaten through some of those uh, shipments that they're receiving from Brazil, are going to really, really pick up, Casey. So I would think better times ahead for at least soybean exports. And I would argue for corn, um, production in South America keeps being downgraded. Um, yeah. We know that the Chinese are, are imports of corn are at some of the highest levels we've seen in years. And remember, the second crop corn in Brazil is just about ready to be harvested. And if there was problems with shipments or if the country were going to some kind of a chaos over the next month or two, it would really impact the ability to get corn out the door. I would have to believe, especially given the escalating tensions between U.S. and China, um, they might be a large buyer of U.S. corn over the next couple of months as a hedge in case a... Brazil can't ship it out, or if the crops are so much smaller than, than, than we think that they may not be able to ship them out. So I do, I'm optimistic on the corn export side and the grain export side. I think the Chinese, you know, if I'm the Chinese and, I'm, and I know it's an election year, who knows what's going to happen, um, I would try to buy, and, and, and we're worried about going to war, I would try to buy as much as I could while I can and while it's available, and it's cheap. Um, yeah. Because I think they know the door could shut down at any moment, and they don't want to be short of food. Um, you know, that's just not, not something that somebody that has a billion four wants to be short of. No, so, that that might cause a problem. That might, yeah. that might resonate a little bit with some people that live there. Yep. 
All right, so let's, let's talk about India, what's going on there. India's got kind of a, uh, a, a kind of a whirlwind of problems right now. So they've got the desert locust issue um, in the sugarcane fields and, well, pretty much everywhere in there and across that whole country's uh, um, agricultural products as you take a look what's going on there. Plus you're heading into uh, monsoon season right now and um, you can't really, uh, can't really hope for a, a better storm to hit them all at the same time, I guess. I mean... They, they've kind of got they're kind of damned if they do damned if they don't right now so as you take a look at at india and 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 the rice and uh and the sugar cane and the things that they're producing there that on a higher level what are your thoughts there and, and how that how's that going to affect the marketplace india's just in a really really bad situation you know they have this desert locust that's building uh, they have the, they shut down the whole country they shut down 1.3 billion people you can imagine that Remember, China only shut down you know, 50 million. They shut down or attempted to shut down 1.3 billion. It was chaos, yep. absolute chaos in India right now. Migrant worker chaos. Nobody knows how things are going to get harvested, how they're going to get planted. It's, 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 it's really a breakdown of society right now in India. There's no law. There's no one watching over the chicken coop. Um, and on top of it, you know, there's... You cannot social distance India. If anyone no. looks at India and how everyone is, you just can't social distance India. And so the, the the disease is out of control because everyone is just next to everybody all the time, and it's not the cleanest of operations. And you know, they're I don't think they wash their hands, even if they could. Uh, I don't think they can wash their hands. And um, so I'm really worried about escalating food shortages and escalating logistical problems in India, um, you know, as you move it. And then, of course, now there's potential for unrest and war with China. That's the last thing that they need on their plate to have mm -hmm. that going on. So, and remember, you know, with that many people to feed and, and, and having India be such an important exporter of things like sugar, things like wheat, things like rice, you know, disruptions there over the summer could have huge impacts on global ag prices. And we believe that it's one of the bullish roadway factors that we think will provide some significant upward adjustments to U.S. price. It's one of the things that we've been talking about pretty regularly, and we are now right at the point where those um, forces should start to be uh, honed in on and, and focused on by, uh, by the marketplace. So yep. it's, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. You know. Yeah, that's a that's a scary situation there, especially with with the number of people that live in that that immediate area between India, Pakistan, and China. I mean, you've got three quarters of the world's population in those those three countries right there. So it's there's a significant amount of uh, of things that could go wrong, and really as far as disruption goes, and then kind of how that whole thing starts and spreads around. So um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a tough place right now. There's a lot of a lot of crazy things happening there. Um, the other thing I kind of wanted, to, and I should have hit on this when we were talking about China to start with, but you know the U.S. has made you know special arrangements on trade with with Hong Kong over this whole deal. Um, if if China does decide to go and make it uh, an autonomous part, a non-autonomous part of China, and bring it back into the fold, I mean Hong Kong is one of is it like the the second or third largest financial hub in the world, something like that. Um, yeah. We start looking at, at markets and how, how it all works together. From an outside markets perspective, and you're looking at 
stuff happening on Wall Street and, and everywhere else across the world, that's going to have a huge impact if, if, if the U.S. companies are no longer, we're not trading with, with the people of Hong Kong like, like we would normally. I mean, that's going to be a huge impact, not just on the U.S. stock market, but across the entire globe, correct? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just part of this ongoing restructuring of the global order, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I mean, um, all the ways that we've been accustomed to doing business, whether it's the you know, World Health Organization, whether it's NATO, whether it's you know, the Hong Kong uh, financial hub, everything seems to, you know, trade war. We are rewriting the rules of how we've been dealing with trade, Casey, for the last you know, 60, 70, 80 years. We're just rewriting the rules. Yep. And every time that I've seen hit, uh, you know, history do this, it's extremely disruptive. Mm-hmm. All kinds of volatility, lots of losses, uh, bankruptcies, opportunities. But I mean, it's mass confusion when you're changing the rule book to a, to a rule set that we have yet to establish, but we're, we're still moving towards. And of course, the, the virus just added, added additional uncertainty at a time that we really didn't need it. It's not like the Hong Kong thing came out of nowhere. We've been dealing with yeah, that's something nothing that's been happening yeah. here. And I would say anyone who's anybody has been, had probably a year to make alternative uh, plan Bs and Cs about what-if scenarios. And I think probably many have already decided what would happen if China really did something and, and ended that. So right. I, it's disruptive, but we've had time to adjust. I, I can't imagine those that have a big stake in the Hong Kong trade haven't devised alternative plans to, to handle uh, an, an eventual takeover of Hong Kong by China. You know. Yep. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the uh, the livestock sector for a minute. And there's the processing plants are still battling coronavirus. There's flare-ups in, in some of these small towns where there's a, a large number of um, where there's where there's processing plants. You know, I think Tyson just had an, another 400 cases kind of pop up in a, a plant in Iowa somewhere. <clears throat> And it's just still dragging down. Not not the supplies there, the demands there. It's just getting it through the other end and, and getting it to people's plates is still the problem. I mean, you start looking at cash prices and, and discounts that you see uh, from from uh, the board to cash price and those kind of things. I guess talk about that. And I mean, you've talked about this before that that where the cash price is comparatively that we're we're in a we're in a move to to really start exploding up. But I guess. We've got to get a process first. So I guess talk about what you see happen in the livestock market. I mean, the numbers have been getting better. Yes, Meaning they have. If you look at the amount of animals that are processed every week, I think now for three or four weeks, we've been processing more than the week before. So they are making progress. They certainly have the profit margins to, to do it. Right. Um, <laughs> the investigations are suggesting maybe there's a little... Hanky panky going on with too much profit margin, but nonetheless, um, you think they are, they are they are they are processing the animals more and more, and so they're they are doing a better job. Yeah. Um, they will continue to do a better job, and at least the cattle price is well off the low. Basically, if you look at a chart of the cattle price, I mean, it based for a while on the volatile trade, and it's really broken out to the upside. Um, the hog price looks like it's about ready to do that. Um, we've had a a problem with hogs that you, you know, cattle you can delay, you can put on pasture, you can ease it back to diet, you can wait for a rainy day, 
you can hold off the cattle animals for a little while until the processors can take them. In the, in the pig business, you really can't, and that's where the, that's where the euthanization concept takes place. Yeah. That's a negative. You just can't put them off. Until, yep. until you have this oversupply that's kept the hog price depressed. But in the fall, we're going to have a whole lot less animals available. We'll have totally disrupted the production the, the reproduction uh, reproductive process, um, and and those plants will continue to get better as we reopen and get a better handle on things. And so, we're pretty excited that there's an opportunity in the hog uh, price for the fall. I have no idea. You know, in the short term, it's really hard to know, you know when do I reach the point? There's enough throughput. I it's really hard to know that, but I'm pretty comfortable. I continue to be consistent about this. That come the fall, you know, let's say October, we're going to have a very significant demand for animals that exceeds the supply of those animals, and the price of it's going to have to show that in a much higher price, like the cattle market already starting to do. So yeah. if I would continue to look for those deferred hog prices for signals that we're ready to turn the corner, we've been in the low 50s, Casey, on the October contract. That is long, long-term support. Uh, you know, we, every time we come down here, we rally, and, and it looks like we're now bouncing back off of that as of yesterday. And so I, I, I would really be paying. I think the market's going to get pretty comfortable that we're going to be rocking and rolling with throughput by that time frame. And I think there could be a pretty exciting period for the deferred hog contracts, you know, maybe the next 30 days or so. Um, you could see an outperformance of the deferred versus the nearby. So I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah, I think they're, I mean, as these restaurants start opening up and and overwhelming majority of the country is is uh, in a phase one and a half for sure, uh, open, you know, if not phase two, um, depending on where you're at. Uh, as these things start to creep open, um, you're going to see more and more demand for proteins as, as these well, remember the, restaurants the start to open. The estimate from, from those that do such things is that we may euthanize 7 to 10 million, million pigs? From if that's, if it's... It's a fair amount. I, I, I think that's the number. I think that I, that I read. I mean, that's a mm -hmm. pretty big number, and that means that um, that's not and, – and, and sows, and even the whole productive process is, is being disrupted. Right. So we're really going to – you know, it, it's, there's, gonna, there's a big hole in supply we see coming in the fall, and it could persist for a while uh, before we get back to anything, nor, uh, you know, anything to normalcy. That's something the cattle market does not have. I mean, the cattle market, we're not euthanizing the cattle like the other pigs. Uh, we are gaining, we're putting weights on the cattle. Uh, so, so you could argue that, you know, if we're deferring animals to the fall, they're going to be there, but they're going to be even heavier. And so cattle's bullish, but I would argue that for the fall, we actually could be seeing a much more severe supply demand mismatch on the hog side because of the difference on how the market handles the short-term oversupply of animals versus throughput. Yeah. All right. So the other side of that, from a, a supply side um, and, and the demand side, kind of coming together and, and the throughput side and what that all looks like, dairy has been um, struggling through this whole coronavirus shutdown thing. Um, some of the futures have really actually kind of shown uh, some glimmer of hope there. Um, no. <clears throat> In the Ford month uh, contracts, and as you look out, um, but volatility is starting to creep back in on some of that stuff, and you're starting to see some some up and downs come back in when you were starting to see some up. So I guess talk about the dairy market, 
what you see happening there and um, you know those government programs they have out um, they basically got back in the government cheese business so I guess as you uh, as you look at the dairy market what are your thoughts there and, and, and are you still in the same position I guess as you were um, last time we talked about it we're constructive um, you know we put out a big major buy signal in dairy in April um, actually two days before the load the way it turned out just by luck happen to catch it just right. Um, so, it, so what's happening? The government is, is committed to buying $100 million worth of dairy supply every month into the end of the year. Uh, there's also an additional program that will buy $120 million of the product in the third quarter. Um, we know that the USMCA is going to be live by July 1st, which means Mexico, which buys an enormous amount of our cheese and milk powder, are going to be stepping up their purchases, at least in the beginning, to put on a good face. Um, we know that we're going to continue to reopen. And as we continue to reopen and more restaurants uh, restock dairy supplies, um, that's going to be increasing domestic demand. And we know that the demand from the supermarket level has been and will continue to be good. <clears throat> and we've had forced production curtailment in the industry by co-ops that you know, didn't need that we're, you know, that we're forcing uh, dairymen to dump milk on the ground and saying, look, we're not going to take any more milk. You know, up, up, up to this point, we'll pay. After that, we're going to, in a sense, force you to curtail your production, which has occurred and won't, re won't reverse until the next lactating cycle. So when we pull that together, it says that, you know, we're looking at a, at a friendly environment and probably higher prices into the fall before, you know, we might get concerned that we're going to be ready to turn on the production spigot again, uh, you know, for the, for the first half of 2021. Our smart money algorithm remains surprisingly bullish. We have seen very little smart money selling during this rally so far. And so as bearish as we were, Casey, at the beginning of the year in dairy, uh, we're pretty constructive right now. We think prices are good and they're going to get better. And the, and the farmer, the producer, is going to have some really good opportunities to sell that are a price that makes sense for them. And as long as they do that over the summer, they're going to be in okay shape, at least the ones that made it this far. So. Yeah. Well, it's up. So I think, I think there's a opportunity there that if there's any of, of the, I guess, livestock sector, if you want to lump them in there, if you want to put those, those three things together, cattle, pigs, and, and the dairy industry, um, that, that's the one that's, uh, it's just like all the rest of them, right? It's a throughput thing, right? You know, we, we've got the demand, we've got the supply, we just don't have throughput. So I guess as we uh, kind of track our way through this and, and as the uh, countries start to open back up, and like you said, the USMCA thing is going to be a big deal and uh, to get for, for the dairy market, and it always has been. So um, hopefully we can get some, get some things rolling there. So, well, Sean? I, I, I would say, Casey, that you know, the, one of the key learning lessons we kind of knew it before, but we really know it now, is that our livestock processing business is not durable. It cannot handle anything other than perfection. We knew it, but now we really know it. Right. So we, we do need to do something so, so that, you know, I don't think this is our last disruption. <laughs> right. You know, so I, I would hope that we would find a way to have some excess capacity available when we need it so that we don't go through this again because... Yeah, how many more times can we put our industry through this before we just lose it altogether? Exactly. Yeah. And we don't want that to happen. So I, 
I hope the sm- people are smarter about it than I am about how exactly to do that, put their heads together, and make it happen. I think that there's enough call to action to say we can't really do- let this happen again. We should never let it happen to begin with, but now that we did, let's not let it happen again. Yep. That's the last parting words I'd like to convey. Is we've got to fix this. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Yeah, it's... Uh... <clears throat> There's enough issues out there right now that we need to get addressed, and um, it's it's like just like you said, it's the elephant in the room. Everybody knows it's been there for a long time, and then you know, I was the elephant actually stands up and kicks over the the coffee table, and they're like, "Well, I guess you are here. Look at this." So it's it's a well, it's a big deal. Well, I, I view it. You know, you jump off a ten story building, and someone on the fifth floor says, "How's it going?" And you say, "So far, so good." Yeah. <laughs> that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah. So far, so good. And then, yeah. of course, you hit, when you hit the bottom, you go, oh, that didn't turn out so well. Yeah. You know, I mean, we knew we were in the wrong place, but now we hit ground floor, rock bottom. We, now yeah. we got to do something. Yeah. Now it's it's uh, the one thing that makes the uh, United States what it is, is, is its its ability to produce food and, and process food and, and get you know get it all over the place through our um, infrastructure and what have you else. I mean, the only reason Kim Kardashian's famous is because we don't have to worry about our next food, where our next plate of food, and where it's coming from, right? Those kind of things, yeah. those auxiliary, like, why, what is this? Why is this important? Exists because we don't have to worry about food. So, you know, we we've got a we got a pretty good system that we need to make sure we keep it that way. So, amen. All right, Sean. Good stuff as usual. Folks want to reach out to you and uh, pick your brain about what's going on. What's the best way to do that? Um, our website is Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. Lots of information on there to see if what we do might be of value to your listeners. Right. And check that website out and check those papers out. And there's there's no better information out there that's just readily available than, than what Sean's putting out there. So good stuff. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Uh, check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, that's where you're going to find the uh, the podcast when I put it out there. Um, also, that's where I post my blogs as well. LinkedIn is a good place to go check that out. Just hit Casey Seymour up on, on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Also, check out uh, YouTube channel. Uh, that's where I post the stuff that we do with TractorZoom, all the visual stuff that we have out there. And uh, go out and subscribe to your on your favorite podcasting platform to the moving iron podcast it helps uh helps boost the numbers and and helps me out there so i'd appreciate appreciate your help on that um so i guess i'll also check out uh, global ag network all the great podcasters out there as well and uh check out the moving iron llc.com website for all the information concerning moving iron llc as well as uh, the moving iron podcast and the moving iron summit in uh, september one through three in nashville tennessee so until next time, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. You'll find us here Moving higher